It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast with Dr. Kevin Payne, a better way of seeing the life that you want to live. Hello, 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 and a very enthusiastic welcome to season three of the Your Life Lived Well podcast in a new streamlined format. I'm recording this in March of 2022. March is Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month every year. And you know, it occurred to me that I've never done an episode focused solely on MS, even though I've lived with it for a very long time. So today, we're going to talk about life with multiple sclerosis. Who is this episode for? Broadly, it's for anyone who's curious about multiple sclerosis. It's a confusing disease, and it's okay if you don't understand all that's happening. I spent decades with it, and I'm still learning about it. More specifically, this is for someone who needs to hear they're not alone. MS isn't a community I'm happy to welcome anyone new to. But you are welcome, and you are supported. And this is for someone who just doesn't understand what a loved one is going through. Maybe you just can't quite believe everything that's happening to them because you can't directly see the causes. I hope this brings you some small measure of acceptance and understanding. We need your support. But first, a couple of housekeeping notes. We've got lots of new ways to engage, learn, and support one another as a community of people living with and caring for health conditions that won't go away. First, take a moment and subscribe and give us five stars on your favorite podcasting platform. I know this is really cheesy, but this really, really helps us with their algorithms so that more of those who need it can get connected and get informed. And of course, share us on social media. We're at Your LL Well on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. So tag us when you do and give us a follow. And share us the old-fashioned way, directly with the people you know who can use the knowledge and support we deliver. Second, drop by yourlifelivedwell.co. That's yourlifelivedwell.co. And sign up for our email list so you don't miss out on information, announcements, discounts, and other goodies. Third, while you're there, check out the 16 new live webinars we're now offering. Each one is focused on helping you and your loved ones through a real challenge of life with chronic illness or giving you the skills you need in a proven technique that improves quality of life. We've announced this schedule through June, but as a special introductory thank you, for the rest of March, you can use the coupon code MAR60. That's M-A-R-6-0 to save 60% on any of them. Topics include help, I've just been diagnosed, self-care strategies, medical adherence, rest, relaxation, recovery, and sleep, strategies for resilience, pain management, building better habits, and nine more. And fourth, if you're really enthusiastic in your support of Your Life Lived Well's mission, and I know you are, 
We've created a new Patreon community. Check us out at patreon.com slash yourllwell, just like our social media handles. Among the many thank yous are early access to podcast episodes and live Q&As with me. That's a lot. But please know that around here, this is all we do. We need your engagement to help as many as we can. And we really like getting to know you and your stories as well. So connect and introduce yourselves. Okay, now, on with the show. So, yeah, I have multiple sclerosis. I first became symptomatic in 1989. I got an accurate diagnosis in 2006. For much of the teens, my condition was at its worst, and I despaired of ever finding a path back to a life I could love living. For the rest of this segment, we're going to talk about what multiple sclerosis actually is. There's a lot of power in honestly sharing our experiences with chronic illness, so I'm going to do that as we go. Because for as awful as life has gotten for me, it's also gotten a lot better, too. In segment two, we'll look at the many surprising symptoms following from the damage MS wreaks. And in segment three, I'll share a bit about my journey with MS, how it really tore my life apart, and how I managed to pull my life back together. And we'll close with a few lessons we can all keep in mind. Multiple sclerosis is one of those conditions that's sort of familiar. Right now, there are about one million people in the United States with an MS diagnosis, and around 2.8 million total worldwide. That makes it a relatively common, rare disease. It's also fortunate to have some very active, charitable, and lobbying institutions behind it that are tireless in their work. I, for one, am grateful for their efforts. That means that most people have probably heard about multiple sclerosis, even though they might not know anything about the condition itself. At best, most think, oh, that's one of those that puts you in a wheelchair, right? Well, maybe. But not as often now as in the past. When I was finally correctly diagnosed, almost 16 years ago, I was told straight up that I should be prepared to be in a wheelchair within a decade. My MS has hit me pretty hard in a lot of ways, but that's not yet been one of them. And that is the first thing people ought to know about MS. It is a curious beast. It's often called a snowflake disease because every case is unique. My journey with MS won't be quite like anyone else's. So let's talk about what multiple sclerosis actually is and the whys of this will become apparent. According to our best current medical understanding, MS is a chronic neurodegenerative autoimmune condition. So far, despite what you may have heard, there is no cure. And that's a lot to unpack. So chronic illnesses 
are any that last at least three to six months, depending on who you ask. Many last forever, and multiple sclerosis will be with me until I die, which, depending on the epidemiological data you look at, might be as much as seven years on average sooner than I would have otherwise passed. While MS is unlikely to kill me directly, it often leads to end-of-life complications. MS never permanently gets better. It eventually gets worse. Neurodegenerative means that my central nervous system, brain, spinal cord, and optic nerves, are being eaten away. <laughs> Sounds creepy. We'll get to how that's happening in a moment. There are many neurodegenerative conditions. Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, and, of course, multiple sclerosis. They're all pretty icky. Autoimmune means that my immune system that is supposed to protect me from harmful foreign invaders has become confused and is now attacking the fatty myelin sheaths that surround and protect many of the neurons in our central nervous systems. Myelin is what makes the white matter in our brains look white. Our central nervous system, or CNS, again consisting of brains, spinal cords, and optic nerves, contains around 100 billion neurons. Our brains are only 2% of our body mass, yet demand 20% of our energy. Their operation depends on a complex, elegant dance of electrical and chemical signals. Like the wires in our homes, many of our neurons are wrapped in an insulating sheath of fatty myelin that keeps the electrical signal from short-circuiting or degrading, speeds those signals along their journeys, and protects the long, thin, delicate axons from damage. There is, by the way, an argument in the medical community over whether MS is primarily an autoimmune or a neurodegenerative condition. <sighs> this is silly. It's like medieval theologians coming to blows over how many angels could dance on the head of a pen. The reality is that it's both. The root cause of most of our symptoms is the resultant neuronal damage, demyelination, inflammation, neuronal loss, neural tissue atrophy, and the buildup of plaques and scar tissues. The underlying cause of that damage, we now think, is this perversely misguided immune response. With MS, my immune system mistakenly attacks my myelin. That means almost any of these neurons can become disrupted, warped, or degraded. And once damaged, the signals those neurons carry become garbled, noisy, or completely lost. All that I think, feel, sense, and do passes through my central nervous system. It's home for all my memories, skills, plans, hopes, and dreams. Everything I was and hope to become depends on my CNS. The symptoms I experience depend on which neurons are damaged. Locations in my brain and spinal cord process and carry different kinds of signals. A few millimeters this way or that and the effects can radically diverge. Here, it's pain. There, it's numbness. Somewhere else, it's emotional processing or my legs don't work. And that doesn't address the follow-on effects. 
Not being able to trust my body is distressing. Suddenly losing a basic bodily function I've long mastered is traumatizing. Having to work harder to make my body and brain perform even the simplest tasks is exhausting. My personal experience of MS depends on where my immune system attacks, how much scarring results, whether a bit of remyelination regrows some of the damaged neural sheaths, or if neuroplasticity helps rewire around the damage. It matters whether or not and how long an attack is active. It matters whether some factor like temperature, fatigue, or distress is triggering my symptoms. It is complex and dynamic. Just when I think I figured it all out, the rules change again without warning. All the things I should take for granted, by virtue of owning and operating a body, are now open to question. If I tell my leg to move, will it move at all? Or will it, perhaps, do something else? Is this emotion real or manufactured in some short circuit? Is this feeling I sense something really touching or scratching or tickling or burning me? Or is it just the byproduct of damage buried deep in my brain? As my MS advances, it robs me of choice. My will is no longer the last word in what I do, think, or feel. At best, what I get is the result of a tenuous negotiation with a hostile intruder relentlessly hijacking my CNS. In short, my brain is being ravaged by a vicious and unrelenting civil war, and most of that is never visible from the outside. No matter how close you are to someone with MS, one of the few things I will guarantee we share in common is that we are all shielding those around us from the full extent of what we face every day. Yeah, it could be worse. No, it's never a contest. And it does pretty thoroughly suck. Now that we've learned a little bit about the whys and hows of multiple sclerosis, let's take a little break. On the other side, we'll resume with a look at the crazy world of MS symptoms. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life, and we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump, and you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Justjump.life It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And we're back. I said before that multiple sclerosis is a snowflake disease, and no two cases are alike. In fact, my own condition varies wildly from time to time, place to place, and circumstance to circumstance. Normal with MS, at least in its most common relapsing remitting form, is variable and surprising. Multiple sclerosis is identified when at least two areas of a central nervous system are damaged in at least two different times, hence multiple, more than one and sclerosis, 
The sclerae are lesions or scars that form on our neurons in the aftermath of an attack. It's only diagnosed as MS if all other possibilities for this sort of damage are clinically excluded. That means getting to an accurate MS diagnosis can become a long, frustrating, confusing ordeal. It certainly was in my case. It also means that, ultimately, the only thing having a multiple sclerosis diagnosis really means is that we each have more than one area of damage in our brains and spinal cords that can't be explained in some other way. That doesn't really illuminate what the experience of life with MS is like, because the medical diagnostic signs of the condition are so far removed from the level of the symptoms we effectively experience every day. I can't directly speak to every symptom of multiple sclerosis because, thankfully, I haven't lived all of them. Over the decades, though, I've experienced almost all of the common ones and most of the unusual ones, too. But even still, my experience of a symptom like pain is unique because pain is a complex variable and layered phenomenon conditioned by our total life history and circumstances. If you'd like to delve deeper into the surprising world of chronic pain, then go back to episode 220 of this podcast, titled Pain Isn't What You Think, or sign up for my webinar on pain management. All I can do is speak to my experience of MS. So in this segment, I'll talk about the MS symptoms I live with beginning with the most common ones for me. My most lasting, persistent, and consistent symptom is paresthesia, or abnormal sensations. These are phantom feelings that have no physical cause. At a minimum, this feels like phantom touches, wind on my skin, crawling insects, or unexplained warm and cool patches. It always itches, like a low-level rash all over my body, but it randomly graduates in intensity to tingling, prickling, burning, stinging, and even electric shocks. They come and go without warning, sometimes even waking me from a deep sleep. They can intensify into either true numbness or various kinds of pain. When I try to feel the world, it's like squinting and straining to see the picture on an old TV with the rabbit ears out of alignment, or dial into an AM station on an old analog car radio. This was among my first symptoms to appear over 32 years ago. In all that time, I have never had one moment where I wasn't at least itching. As you might guess, that can become pretty annoying but I've had to learn to ignore it the best I can. That leads me to my next two ever-present symptoms, chronic pain and numbness, because these three actually live on a sort of continuum of sensory weirdness. I live with two forms of chronic pain due to my MS. The first is neuropathic or neurogenic pain. This is a signal I perceive as pain because related nerves in my central nervous system are damaged and misfiring. It's not a useful, actionable signal like nociceptive pain usually is. Nociception is when a specialized nerve fiber in our skin 
or in some organs, detects a dangerous noxious stimulus, such as burning or crushing. Chronic neuropathic pain is essentially noise, not a signal, because it doesn't convey useful information I can use to save myself. I also sometimes develop musculoskeletal pains because, for example, some muscle groups might be weakened due to MS attacks and I'm moving in strange ways to try and compensate for that loss. I can develop soreness and strains as I try to move through life with body parts that don't want to correctly move. I haven't had a pain-free day in almost two decades. During my worst stretch, I had most of a decade where I rated myself daily between a 6 and an 8 on a standard 11-point pain scale. I was popping 24 ibuprofen a day to try and take some of the edge off. Most of the other meds didn't make a dent, and knowing the research, I simply refused to follow the opioid path. Eventually, through a dedicated program of meditation, exercise, and cognitive reframing, I've been able to reduce my perceived pain to a manageable 1 to 3, but it's still always there. My condition hasn't changed, but my perception has. Effectively, I've learned not to care about pain. At the other end of this weirdness continuum is numbness. All of the time, my legs below my knees are some degree of numb. At best, this is like the pins and needles we feel when we might lay the wrong way for a while and an arm goes numb from lack of circulation. At worst, I lose total feeling. The last time I went barefoot, well over a decade ago, I completely embedded a two-inch long splinter of glass into the sole of my left foot. I tracked bloody footprints through the house, oblivious, until my panicked little kids screamed at me about it. Years ago, the incident that led directly to my diagnosis was when I woke up and the only parts of my body I could feel were my right arm and my head. One of the surprising consequences of all this variable noise is that I cannot trust my feelings as an accurate gauge of what my body is doing. Our bodies have a lot more than five senses. Two of these that aren't often discussed are called interoception and proprioception. Interoception is our sense of what's going on inside our own bodies. Feeling our hearts beat, breathing, how full our stomachs are, or any of the many autonomic and somatic feelings related to emotions. My internal signals are jangled, so it's sometimes difficult to understand exactly what's going on in there. I have to work harder to even make a good guess. Proprioception is our ability to sense where our parts are in space, how they're moving, and what they're doing. I especially have difficulty sensing what's going on with my legs. That makes me sometimes clumsy and prone to injuries, and it was a real challenge learning to skydive. Because in that activity, precisely controlling your body in space is a life and death matter. But I persisted with a lot of help and learned to identify the signals I can trust. The human body is remarkably adaptive. My next constant symptom is lassitude and chronic fatigue. After a good night's sleep, which I usually manage because I've become pretty obsessive about my sleep hygiene. The best I get is tired when I wake. I start most days about as responsive as a normal healthy person at the end of their long busy day. 
By the end of my day, I'm well into medical fatigue. Awake, tired, fatigued, and exhausted are qualitatively, medically different experiences. If you'd like to know more about these differences and why they matter, go back to episode 106 of this podcast titled Tired, Fatigued, and Exhausted. If you need to know how to improve your own sleep, check out episode 214 called A Good Night's Sleep. And if you really need to get a handle on your own rest and recovery, sign up for my webinar on Techniques for Rest, Relaxation, Recovery, and Sleep. The fifth symptom I always live with is known in the MS community as cog fog or brain fog. These are cognitive effects on thinking, learning, and planning. In short, I'm always at least a little confused and have to work hard to think my way through problems or to retrieve memories, ideas, and words. Navigating through my mind is like trying to thread my way through a crowded, smoky room at dusk without bumping into everyone or knocking things over. It just takes a lot more effort to do what I used to do with ease. It's difficult to maintain concentration and focus as with ADD. I must also constantly be on guard against temperature sensitivity. This is another really common feature of life with multiple sclerosis. Changes in temperature aggravate our symptoms. I've had heat sensitivity for over 15 years. A slight increase in my temperature leads to a general worsening of my symptoms and accelerates numbness and parathesias all over my body. Once the ambient temperature climbs into the 80s, I can actually feel my leg numbness worsen and begin traveling up my body. Over the last five or six years, I've also developed a cold sensitivity, but its effects are different. When the temperature passes down into the 40s, I develop spasticity and weakness in my legs. If I get too cold, my legs simply no longer work, and I'm liable to seize up, fall over, and become temporarily paralyzed. That's already quite a list, and these are just my constants. I've got 25 more symptoms that come and go with various frequencies. These include difficulty with walking, gait, movement, and mobility, problems with balance, coordination, and clumsiness, called ataxia, dizziness and vertigo, and tremors. I experience bouts of muscle stiffness, spasms, and weakness. I occasionally feel something called the MS hug, or intercostal spasms, where my chest is suddenly painfully constricted and I have difficulty breathing. Just about every day, I go through spells of frequent urination with difficulty emptying my bladder. I'm sometimes constipated, then suddenly must evacuate my bowels with a little warning. I sometimes have difficulty swallowing and choking, known as dysphagia. When I'm alone, this can become the most disturbing symptom of all. Choking is dangerous and panic-inducing. I always must be mindful as I eat. I experience intermittent speech problems like slurring or dysarthia, dysphonia, stuttering, low volume, and getting stuck on words. As someone who loves words so much that I read the entire dictionary cover to cover as a kid and has always used words in my work, this is frustrating and embarrassing. It took me a long time to start this podcast because I'm now very self-conscious about my words. I commonly live with depression or dysthymia. 
difficult for someone that has a naturally optimistic disposition, but an understandable reaction to living in a body always dreaming up spectacular and surprising ways to betray me. I have bouts of pseudo-bulbar affect, or labile emotions, where my emotions are unexplainably all over the place and bear no connection to the reality I'm experiencing. I'm liable to laugh uproariously at something that isn't really funny, or cry at the drop of a hat. I have occasional headaches and vision problems, like blurred and double vision and eye diminished hearing, diminished taste, and Lermit's sign, which is an electric shock passing through my torso when I move my chin toward my chest. And there's a list of more specific and pronounced cognitive effects that come and go. Of course, each time symptoms worsen, it comes with the dreaded thought, what if this is the time my symptoms will no longer remit? Is this the time I'm stuck with this challenge forever? I have to admit, I've declined over the years, and it's not just natural aging. My best is now maybe 80% of what it once was. My worst is now barely functional, and I require far longer to recover from careless overexertion. This isn't a pity party. It's just a list of the challenges I live with that others can only get the tiniest glimpses of. Yeah, living in my carcass can be sort of hellish, but I've managed to adapt. And my ultimate point here is that every one of the almost 3 million people now living with multiple sclerosis can construct their own list like this. And most of the time, we're quietly moving through the world, rarely complaining, just trying to pull together good lives for ourselves, and the rest of you will never know. That's okay. We all have our challenges, and they all suck. File this under the old aphorism, be kind, because you never know the battles someone else is fighting. <sighs> now I need a quick break. <laughs> On the other side, I'll tell you a little about my personal journey with MS. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life. It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Welcome back to this special episode in recognition of Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month. In this segment, I want to share something about my personal journey with MS. Like many of us, I lived with multiple sclerosis for a very long time before I was formally diagnosed. In 1989, I was a college student. Toward the end of that year, I started to feel weird. I felt really tired, almost as I had a couple of years before with mono. I was confused and foggy in a way I'd never felt before. My thinking, always pretty fast and sharp, now seemed in slow motion. My eyes were strange. The only way I could describe it was that they seemed to stutter, or suddenly, rapidly spasm back and forth. I began to itch everywhere. 
but there was no external sign or reason, and my balance went wonky, which I really noticed because of my fencing class. Fencing requires good balance, and exercises that had never previously troubled me were suddenly difficult or impossible. I would fall over in class, and it was embarrassing. I got pretty down about the whole thing, and even quit the class in frustration. After living with this weirdness for two or three months, I finally made an appointment with the university physician. I had no clue what was going on. I just knew this was a little disturbing and disrupting, and I needed an answer. Looking back on it, I'm also not certain what he was thinking. He gave me a once-over, listened to my complaints, and after a moment of consideration concluded, You're depressed. I was a little taken aback. Yes, I was definitely pretty discouraged and confused. But there were these other things, too. They didn't sound like depression to me. But then again, I was a kid and he was the physician. What did I know? Perhaps he fixated on what he expected to hear from an otherwise healthy young man in a demanding honors program. Back in 1989, multiple sclerosis certainly wasn't an option that would have sprung easily to mind for my case. So I shrugged and went with it. Depression certainly ran in my family. He referred me to a psychiatrist who confirmed, Yes, you have major depression. And he gave me some pills. The pills didn't work. So he gave me some different pills. They didn't work either. So we tried another kind of pills. And they didn't work. I was now getting close to the end of the available options for over 30 years ago, so he pronounced me treatment-resistant, which is, of course, the medical establishment's way of saying, we don't know what to do, you're on your own, kid. I took a sabbatical from my education. A few months later, I was back to normal, so I resumed my studies, moved to England, flew through the rest of my undergrad, and then started work on my doctorate. And the symptoms hit again. Noticeably worse this time. But I already had my answer. It was my weird and wacky depression back for another round. I really did become thoroughly depressed this time, switched programs, and, as if by magic, one day my symptoms were gone again. And once again I hit turbo boost on my life. I flew through my doctoral coursework, sat my comprehensive exams, began work on my dissertation research, and started teaching at a couple of universities. I even found the time to begin my long-anticipated training to become a skydiver and made my first few jumps. I had a long, good streak. But again, one day, the long-disappeared symptoms returned with a vengeance. And again, since I'd already been told that medicine had no cures to offer me, I just gutted it out as my life unraveled. Work on my dissertation ground to a halt. I had difficulty keeping up with anything in my life. My long-ingrained habits of nutrition and exercise fell by the wayside. I began eating out all the time. Over the next two years, I gained 120 pounds. I ballooned from a trim 27-inch waist to barely squeezing into 46-inch pants. I was lost. Then, one morning, it was as if I saw myself again. I padded to the bathroom, took a long look in the mirror, and really saw myself for the first time in a long time. Oh my gosh, I gasped. I look like the guy who swallowed Kevin. I returned to my old habits slowly at first. Over the following two years, I got back to my exercise and nutrition, I lost the fat, gained back the muscle, and returned to my customary size. 
I was making progress again on my dissertation, and I felt like myself once more. I completed my doctorate, started a family, and took a job administering a large academic department. But in 2002, although I didn't realize this yet, my MS flared up again. But this time, the symptoms were different. This morning, a couple of days before Thanksgiving that year, I couldn't feel my left leg below my knee. There was nothing to connect this with a serious illness. I was still a young man, armored in the illusion of my own invulnerability, so I dismissed it, thinking I'd probably pinched a nerve during my workout the day before. And sure enough, a few days later, my leg was back. Then it was gone again. Then it was back. And then other parts of my body started intermittently disappearing for stretches. Finally, one morning when I awoke, I could feel my right arm and my head but the rest of my body was just gone. My then-wife said this had gone on long enough and that I would be getting this looked at. So I did. That kicked off a comedy of medical errors over the next few months. At one point I was told, at least you'll be glad to know that it is not multiple sclerosis. That was a relief. But after we had the opportunity to get me into a brand new MRI with better resolution, for the time, my neurologist suddenly backtracked. I'm so sorry. There's no doubt it's MS, and it's been with you for a long time. It was sort of a gut punch, but it was also a big relief to finally have a name for all this weirdness in my life. Despite the diagnosis, life was good. My symptoms were there, but well-managed and seldom more than a nuisance. I was researching, writing, teaching, doing all the things I loved to do. But during this time, my then-wife was dealing with ever-worsening mystery symptoms of her own. Things began to get stressful. I was the sole income for a family of four with growing kids. I not only managed a department with 150 instructors and over 10,000 annual student enrollments, I also never taught less than 11 classes a year to keep our heads above water. I gradually put off caring for myself in favor of the family I adored. I kept saying to myself, well, next month will be better, and then I'll have some time for me. Of course, next month was never any better. It was usually worse. I lost my sense of work-life balance. My old symptoms were growing worse and new symptoms were appearing. The pain became unbearable and relentless. I became increasingly confused. I lost my lifelong facility with words and could no longer communicate well. At the very last instant, my then-wife got her correct diagnosis. It was a very late stage 3 hormone-secreting chromophobe renal cell carcinoma, a kidney cancer that had been growing inside her undiagnosed for 14 years. They rushed her into surgery. It was supposed to take three hours, but they almost lost her, and it took five and a half, the longest hours of my life. They pronounced her cured and said she would be back to normal in six months. It took twice as long for her to get close to herself again. But she was better, and my condition had given me a reprieve, too. Although, in retrospect, I was probably fooling myself out of desperation. I had put off my own professional plans for years. I wanted to leave the academy for the life of a startup tech entrepreneur and bring a technology I'd developed from my research to market. So we agreed it was time for me to make the jump. Shortly thereafter, once we were out on the limb without a net, my MS delivered the most ugly flare-up I'd ever experienced. It was all the old symptoms, but worse. 
and terrifyingly, a whole new set of cognitive and emotional symptoms I'd never experienced. I truly hadn't understood exactly how bad multiple sclerosis could get. But by then, it was too late. My life exploded. My career exploded. My family exploded. I was left alone. And my dog even died. Traumatically, in front of me. I disappeared into the gaping maw of a depression with a body and brain that managed to betray me in every possible way. I had become terrified of my own body. I was on the verge of giving up completely. But I decided to give myself one last chance. I'd use my science and skydiving to save myself. Yeah, it sounds like a wacky plan. Obviously it worked. I'm here and talking to you now. I founded Your Life Lived Well, started this podcast, developed a curriculum, conducted years of research, wrote a book in developing the technology, and became a legit skydiver. All that recovery is a story for another time. For now, I'll wrap up my story with a few small points you can take away. First, multiple sclerosis is a surprisingly devastating beast. Second, no matter how close you are, you cannot truly understand the awfulness from the inside. Third, it affects everyone, those diagnosed, their loved ones, and anyone else in the blast zone. Fourth, I'm much better now, but I'm not cured and I'm not normal. This is a battle I will always face. It won't be over until I am. Fifth, there is every reason to be hopeful. Yes, it's a challenge, but it's a challenge we are up for. Medical care, helping organizations, and support communities have never been better or more accessible. And we humans are marvelously adaptive. And finally, my story isn't exceptional or unusual. Three million other humans right now have their own stories just as dramatic. Most of you probably know someone who lives with multiple sclerosis, and I'll encourage you to take the time to listen to their stories, too. Multiple sclerosis is a huge topic. I've just scratched the surface in this episode. I had to really work to keep my thoughts down to one episode's limit. And my perspective is just that, my perspective. We can't generalize from my experience to anyone else, although there are likely to be some striking similarities. Multiple sclerosis is a devastating diagnosis, but it's not a life sentence. If you're living with it, remember, you are still you. You are so much more than your condition. We may be sick, but we can still live well. So until next time, go forth, be well, do well, and do good. If you've enjoyed today's topic and want to join the conversation with Dr. Kevin Payne, find Your Life Lived Well on all of your favorite social media sites, Patreon, and of course, yourlifelivedwell.co.